Welcome back to Not Another Science Podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm Alex. This week, we're talking to Anna Rita Pires, a lecturer in the School of Mathematics at the University of Edinburgh. Anna is a mathematician who has had a fascinating career in maths, though this wasn't the original plan. Talking to Anna about maths doesn't feel like talking about maths. She uses powerful analogies, mostly relating to food, like watermelons, steak and chocolate, to explain her field of research known as symplectic geometry and several cool concepts along the way. Anna explains how she uses her passion for maths to engage and excite others to learn and how a misunderstanding about her work and origami actually ended up helping her to communicate maths to the general public. Anna's obvious passion for maths and her excitement for teaching and collaborations only leaves us wishing Anna had been her maths teacher at school. If you're wondering what symplectic geometry is and why we're talking about watermelons and origami, then keep listening and it should, hopefully, all start to make a bit more sense. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by Griner Bio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. So my name is Anna Rita Pires, and my pronouns are she, her, and I am a mathematician at the University of Edinburgh, which means I teach maths and I do research. And I do a little bit of outreach when I can. So what area of maths are you specifically interested in? So my area of research is called symplectic geometry. What is symplectic geometry and what is it used for? So geometry is the study of shapes, right? Study of spaces. And then you can add some flavor to that. So the easiest, well, we have like Euclidean geometry, which is what you study like in, um, in school, you know, triangles and circles and Pythagoras theorem and so on. But then you can start talking about slightly more complicated things. So differential geometry, differential sort of means smooth is about the study of smooth shapes. So you can't have pointy bits. So you can study like the outline of a circle or the surface of a sphere or the surface of a donut, those kinds of shapes. And then you can put some extra structure on them. So the easiest, the most straightforward one is called Riemannian geometry after well, this mathematician called Riemann. And it's where you, the extra structure that you put on your space is that you know what it means to have the distance of a path so if you draw a line on your space, you know, if your space is 3D, just imagine like a line in space, uh, like a squiggly line, and you can tell that extra structure tells you what is the length of that line. And then that allows you to do things, you gain a lot of things. So it allows you to say what is the shortest path between two points. So that's called like a geodesic. That's even like a thing when you think about, you know, flying planes and stuff. You can talk about things like curvature, like is your space flat or is your space positively curved or negatively curved? So positively curved like a sphere or negatively curved like a, a Pringle or a saddle. And, you know, the, the way that, that those two things connect, just out of curiosity, is if you take a point and then you, you do a circle of radius one, remember, you know, lengths, so you can do a circle of radius one around that point. If that circle, the length of that is two pi, which is what you would expect it to be, then that means that your space is flat. And if it's less than 2 pi, then that means that your space is positively curved like a sphere. And if it's more than 2 pi, then it's negatively curved like a Pringle or a saddle. So if you put a bit of structure on your space, then you gain a lot of information that you can study. Symplectic geometry is not that. 
you don't know how to measure lengths, but this is the easiest one to explain. What you do know is you know how to measure the area of a two-dimensional blob floating in your space. Blob is not a technical term. And uh, so then you gain a lot of extra things that you can do knowing that structure. And that's what I do. So I do symplectic geometry. I think about all those other things that you gain from having that bit of added structure. Let me tell you the only real world application that I know. <laughs> well, I should say it has a lot of like applications to other areas of math, some surprising, some not. And then it also gets applied to like obviously physics, because uh, that's where it came from, but also more surprising areas of physics like string theory and those things that I don't really understand how they're connected, but I believe that they are. But here is one real world application that is kind of amazing. So there's this guy, Edward Bell Bruno, and he was trained as a mathematician. So he was a PhD student in maths, but then he went to work for NASA. So he was trained as a symplectic geometer. You know, symplectic geometer and dynamical systems, you know, that, that's sort of the physics sort of aspect of symplectic geometry. Then he went to work for NASA and he developed a method to calculate very low energy trajectories for spacecrafts. So, you know, again, it's a point moving in space, so you can see the connection there. And he, he got into a lot of fights with engineers, apparently. They ended up not using his idea. Then he heard about this Japanese space probe that was lost in space. And he contacted them and he said, I have this method. I think I can save your space probe. So what had happened was that I, I saw a talk that he gave and he calls it a desk and a watermelon. And the desk had the watermelon inside a drawer. Obviously not, not a real desk, not a, not a real watermelon either. And the desk was supposed to be orbiting Earth in a very, like a very large orbit. And then once it got close to the moon, it was supposed to open the drawer and release the watermelon. And then the watermelon was going to go around the moon and make some measurements. But the watermelon failed, and then the desk was just left orbiting the Earth, but, you know, not much use. And it, had, it didn't have much fuel left because it, it had done what it was supposed to do. And so what he did was he said, okay, well, I think I, with one of my low energy trajectories, you know, I can wait until the desk is like at this specific spot. And then we use just a tiny bit of fuel to change its position a little bit. And then it goes into a different orbit and it goes like another month around whatever it needs to go around. And then we use a tiny bit more fuel to change it to this direction. And then it ended up going into lunar orbit and it ended up doing some measurements itself. And then they crashed it into the moon on purpose. I think they just don't want stuff floating around. To go in using traditional methods to go from where it was to where it then ended up orbiting the moon to make the measurements, it usually takes three days. But with these low uh, energy trajectories, it took five months, but it got there. So now he, he makes a living out of this. He has like a consulting firm that cap like helps people capture useless satellites and stuff and then puts them in useful places. Wow. So this, this is a thing. <laughs> And that is the only application of symplectic geometry. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it's the only in real world that I know. Um, I love it. What a great example. I, if you were going to have an example <laughs> of all the ones you could have, the desk and the watermelon is the good one. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but in, in math, then you just sort of forget about the physics, right? As in everything with math, you like start with 
a problem and then you make it really abstract with math and then you forget about the original problem and then you just like go to town with it and have fun with all the math. That's what I do. That's my part. I don't do any lunar orbit captures and stuff. Well, actually, originally, we uh, so originally you were going to be on a previous season of the podcast with Tom and Helda. And when we first found your work, we were like, ah, oh, she works on origami. This is so cool. We could do a live tie-in, have people folding origami. And then we realized our terrible, terrible mistake. So could you tell us in, in very simple terms how we made a very, very funny error thinking that you worked with actual origami? <laughs> okay, well, that's fair. Uh, you're not the first people to make this mistake. So the thing that I wrote my thesis on is called symplectic origami. And it's actually a, a bit of a tragic, well, not tragic, but a scary story for me, anguishing story, how the name came to be. So I was a, a grad student and I went to give a talk, my first solo talk at a conference uh, in Switzerland, I think. And before my talk, another professor that was at the conference came up to me and said, I read your abstract. And I, I have a student who's working on the same problem and he's due to graduate first. So you need to stop working on your problem and find something else because he needs to work on that to graduate. What? It's like <laughs> the worst nightmare. Are they allowed to do that? <laughs> uh, I guess so. I guess this is what... <laughs> Anyways, we had a meeting. We had like an impromptu meeting with my advisor and me and this professor and like some other professor that went there to help mediate. And it turned out that we were not working on the exact same thing. We were both working on something called folded symplectic manifolds, which is like spaces with a symplectic structure, but it's a little bit degenerate, whatever. And he he was working on all of those. And I was working on a subclass of those that I thought was more interesting in getting, you know, different results, of course. Like he had a more general class of objects and was getting slightly weaker results. And because I had a a more restricted class of objects, I could get stronger results. I mean, which is, I'm not to say that his math was weaker than mine. It's just that his objects were more general, so you can't say as many things about them. Okay, not poo-pooing his work. In any case, um, <laughs> it was decided that it was different enough that we could both continue doing what we were doing, but I had to change the name because my objects were not like the entire class of folded symplectic manifolds. So, you know, if it's folded, but it's like extra nice, call them origami manifolds. So that's how the name came up. And then, you know, I did my work. And then when I graduated, lots of people gave me origami paper as a present. I still have some. Like, people really gave me a lot. <laughs> I, I still have uh, some. But then what's, what happened was that people would ask me to talk about this thing. So the first time that I was invited to give a, a talk for the general public, they said, well, you could talk about your work on origami. And I was like, that is a terrible idea. It's far too technical and not very interesting for the general public. Uh, so I had to come up with some other topic. And I thought about lots of different topics, but I ended up finding out that there's actually a lot of maths in origami, the paper folding kind. So I, I read up about it, it was really interesting. And then I prepared to talk about it and I talked about that. And I've given a few talks, you know, for kids and for adults and for undergrads, um, you know, so slightly different flavors of the same talk, but it's cool, it's cool stuff. It, there is math in it, it's just not symplectic geometry. I'm, I'm really interested then, for all like the avenues that you could have taken in maths, why did you choose symplectic geometry? Ah. Okay, because there's a theorem that is beautiful. 
And I just fell in love with it. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Okay. <laughs> so I was taking classes. I was taking different classes as a grad student. Where I was a grad student in the US, you pick like three topics that you're going to be examined on after your first or second year. And it's like one major topic and two minor topics. And your major topic is supposed to be what becomes your thesis area. And so I took lots of different classes. And then there was one theorem in symplectic geometry that I was just like, wow, this is it. I want to work on this. This is really cool. And it was basically about how you can represent if you have a symplectic space with in addition to measuring areas, you also have some symmetries. Like if you rotate your space in a lot of different ways, it looks the same. Like if you rotate a sphere, you know, it still looks like a sphere. So it has rotational symmetry. So if your space has a lot of symmetries, then it is true that you can represent your, say, four-dimensional space by a two-dimensional. Uh, so you can represent your four-dimensional, like very complicated, like, um, smooth space with lots of waves and so on, you can represent it by a polygon, a two-dimensional polygon, like a square or a triangle. And if it's your space is six-dimensional, then you can do it with a three-dimensional polytope, like a solid. So you can always reduce your dimensions to half. And instead of it being like a complicated wavy smooth space, it's like a convex thing, like a square or a triangle or a cube or a pyramid. And I was like, this is amazing. So then I, that, I picked that to be my uh, major in the examination, and then it went from there. Wow, nice. So you just really followed your gut on that one. So I guess um, we did a bit of background reading on you, and we understand that you originally were in medical school when you were doing your first degree. So what was it that made you take that kind of step out of something like a medical degree, which obviously a lot of people want to get into? So I went into medicine first because... Well, because it's a very worthy profession. Doctors are great. And also I had done a year abroad as a teenager in high school and it was too easy. Academically, it was too easy. I mean, socially, it was great. You know, I, I learned a lot about people and myself and English. It was in Canada, in the English-speaking part of Canada. But academically, it was just too easy. Uh, the, the classes that were academic subjects like maths and science. And I was so bored academically that I decided I needed to go into something really hard. And at the time in Portugal, where I grew up and where I was going to go to college, one of the hardest science degrees to get into was medicine. And so I decided, well, that's the one then. I don't want to go through this being bored again. And so I did. I, I went into medicine and I learned a lot, but I missed maths too much. I really, really missed maths. And so instead of doing the, I had written a plan, I had written down a plan, I was going to do my medicine degree, and then I was going to volunteer for a couple of years with Doctors Without Borders, because that seemed so, it, it's so cool. It's like such a cool thing. And I was going to go into, I was, I was thinking I might go into epidemiology, which, you know, now thinking about it, it's like, oh, <laughs> well, that would have been an interesting uh, parallel path. And then I missed math and I was like, oh, hmm, okay. So scrap that plan and just go into the thing that gives you joy right now. And so that's what I decided to go with. So I 
switched to math. I went to a uh, someone, one of my older colleagues in medical school, he had a friend who was doing a degree in maths. And so I went to a, math, a geometry class of this friend in his university. And it was about non-Euclidean geometries, which means it's like geometry, but your lines don't have to be straight. So... For example, all right, let me just tell you, if you have, we're on planet Earth, the straightest line that you can do is a great circle, right, around the Earth. And the professor was just like, so let's take a straight line, and he draws like a curve on the board. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> this is what I want to do. <laughs> and and that's it. So I stayed, I, fi- I finished the year in, in medical school, because what else was I going to do? I, I really enjoyed my friends there. And then the following year, I started in math. And then when I finished my undergraduate degree, I just kept going with this mode of thinking. I was like, all right, what brings me joy right now? Math. So I'll go on to graduate school. And then when I was done with graduate school, I decided to continue. And here I am. I absolutely love the passion you have when you're talking about maths. And you mentioned before that you've done some outreach work. Is it something important to you that you share this love of maths with other people? And what's the best way that you found to do that? So I really enjoy doing outreach things. And I, I think I, I enjoy lots of different kinds of outreach. So one of the, I think maybe the most fulfilling thing that I've done in outreach was when I was in, in the in the US still. I was a volunteer teacher in a program that teaches maths to inmates. And so I would go into a prison one night per week and teach math to the people that were taking classes there. And, you know, it wasn't complicated maths at all. It was stuff that you do. I think it was like pre-calculus or pre-college level. So the one, the thing that you do just before you go into college classes, but it just felt really important to do it. And also these students, they were so, they wanted to learn, of course, that's why they were there, but they really wanted each other to succeed. Like I've never seen that level of investment in each other, even, yeah. So it was just, you know, they were really trying to get everyone there. It was really, really nice. Was that with a view to like rehabilitation type um, work? I don't know if I'm using the term correctly, but was that like the view or was it for pure interest for people who said like, I really just want to be learning and do stuff? Uh, so one thing is that in the US has a problem with its criminal justice system. A lot of people are incarcerated that shouldn't, especially black and brown people. And um, there's some statistic that says that people that take classes in, in prison are, you know, I, I don't remember the number a certain percentage less likely to go back to prison uh, after they've been released. And, you know, people go into prison sometimes quite young and they haven't had a chance to, you know, finish their high school, go to college. And I think it really helps to have a, a degree of some sort to, you know, to have an education so that you can get a job so that you can, you know, just that kind of life, I guess. <laughs> and so they, this program, it just allows people to do college level courses while they're inside. And then when some of them graduate inside and they have like graduation ceremonies inside the prison every year, it's really emotional. <laughs> and, uh, and some people get uh, released before they graduate. And then uh, these, these classes, they get 
convert it into college credit so that when they enter, they can apply for college and then they will have done, you know, sort of all the classes in their first year or something. And then they can continue. And some of them, I, I think there are students that have gone on to finish their degree and go into a PhD even. And you have just, you have just so many different types of people in incarcerated. Maybe some don't want to have a college education, but certainly some do. So, yeah. Oh, that is such a cool like thing to be able to do, to actually have, you know how you were saying previously, sometimes you think, oh, where's my real world application or impact of my work? But to be able to actually pass on your knowledge and teaching and inspire other people in whatever way it be, like through the prisons or another way, that seems really fulfilling and a really nice thing to do with what you've got as a skill set, essentially. And then there's also like really fun other outreach that I've done that is really fun is like with children. So this thing called math circles is like a thing that exists in, in various flavors. So here at the University of Edinburgh, we have math circles. And the, the flavor that it takes here is on the weekends. It's like drop-in sessions. Not every weekend, three or four weekends per term. And parents can come and bring their kids. And then there are like little math puzzles or games that they can play with and uh, interact with. And then there are volunteers, so usually students or faculty that help them along and like ask interesting questions and so on. And I think that's really fun. I, I went to a couple here in Edinburgh, but the ones that I used to do in the US was uh, slightly more structured. So it was once a week, same group of kids, like it was like a little after school class for kids. And I had a group that was like five and six year olds. So it's a little bit more structured and you have like a, you know where you want to go. So what I wanted them to get to at the end of the 10 weeks was I wanted them to deduce the formula for the area of a circle. But I mean, they don't, right? They don't even know what area is <laughs> at the beginning. So, you know, at week one, I started with, I bought some, I brought some shapes, some rectangles cut out of construction paper, and I put them all on the blackboard. And I said, which one is biggest? And, uh, you know, they pointed at the tallest one, the tall and skinny one. And I was like, hmm, right. I guess biggest is not really a well-defined. And I was like, okay, what's your favorite food? And we had, you know, there, there was a group that said chocolate and then there was a group that said steak. And I was like, okay, so if, if these rectangles were made of steak and you were really hungry, which one would you want to eat? <laughs> you know, and then it's like, so then you go from there for to, okay, so how can you, how can you tell that this one is bigger than that one? So if it fits inside the other one, then it's smaller. But what if like there are different shapes and you can't fit one inside the other? And then you can like cut it up and you know, try to fit the pieces and, and so on and so forth. So in the end, by the end, they, they did get to the area of the circle. They had to come up with, there was clearly this constant that was coming up, which was three and a little bit. Uh, that was, you know, pi. And I told them it was called pi and they thought that was hilarious because, <laughs> you know, they didn't have heard of the letter pi, of course. So they interpreted it as like pi, like apple pie or something. And uh, yeah, so it, that was really interesting like really really interesting to see them thinking about things and trying to come up with hypotheses and testing them mm. um yeah it's really cool oh that's so sweet so it seems like there isn't anything you don't like about math so i'm gonna ask is there anything you dislike about your job like what's the worst thing the worst things about my job i would say that it's so a lot of when i do research I am working at the edge of my understanding, at the edge of my knowledge, right? And what that means is that I feel 
ignorant and I feel slow to understand a lot of the time. And that that is hard. It's hard to feel ignorant and it's hard to feel slow to understand. And of course, I know that, you know, that's just because I'm working at the edge of my understanding and it's completely normal, but it's still hard. I mean, students, I, I mean, I, I find it, I now find it very easy to think about linear algebra and calculus, like the things that we teach our students in like the first and second year. But I'm sure that the students in our first and second year, some of them are like, I just feel so ignorant and so slow. And this is so hard and soul crushing, you know, and that's just because you're at the edge of your understanding and you just, that's what it's like. And that's what it's like for us too. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a different edge. (laughs) Yeah. So I think that's the worst part of my job is just having to deal with those feelings. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. So flipping that question on its head then, what's the best thing about your job? Like, what's the bit you like the most that gets you up every morning? The bit of my job that I like the most? I think that, see, I really like people, it turns out. I say it turns out because when I was uh, in year eight or nine, I did these, I didn't know which path to choose. You had In Portugal, you have to choose when you go to year 10 in school, you have to choose if you want sciences or humanities or arts. And I didn't know what to choose. And so you could do these tests with a psychologist. And I went and I did the test with a psychologist. And then the psychologist said, hmm, so it looks like um, maybe maybe something where you don't have to have a lot of contact with people. <laughs> Uh, so that's why I say it turns out I actually really like talking to people. I really like people. So I think the things that have both people and math, so like talking to students, like teaching and also like preparing the lectures, like imagining, like, how can I make this best for most interesting for the students? And then like supervising projects is fun because you get to talk so much with the students. So I really like the part where you talk to the students and especially if I get to talk to them about math, because I really like (laughs) math. And um, in research, I think I really like having collaborators. I really like doing Mm. math research with people. Like, you know, sitting in front of Blackboard with like someone else working on the same problem is just amazing. You can just like get lost in time, you know, work until, you know, 10 p.m. Well, not now with kids, but before. It's just so much fun and, and so much better than doing it by myself. And also, again, the outreach, because you get to be with people and tell them about math. And often, I mean, if you're with a mathematician, you sort of you don't have to convince them that math is great. But with people that like from the general audience, you can really get that like when they're like, oh, wait, actually, this is fun. You know, I mean, they don't necessarily have to say it. People aren't that forthcoming. (laughs) But, uh, you know, you see them getting into it like, yes. (laughs) yeah so yeah the things that connect math that have both math and people that that's where i'm at a huge thank you to anna for joining us on the show and sharing her enthusiasm for maths with us and if you're interested in finding out more about anna's work we'll link to her university profile in the show notes This episode is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Media. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university and beyond. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, 
or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast at gmail.com. And you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. This episode was hosted by me, Hannah Muir, and Alex Bailey. The podcast logo was designed by USI Chief Editor Apple Chu, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama by Kevin McLeod, and the outro music is an edited version of Footballs in Space by Professor Colin Campbell. Thank you for listening, and until next time, keep it science! <laughs> <laughs>